Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this Alien Minute Productions holiday office party or something. There's a lot of people here today, folks. Uh, we're all gathering together for this special time of the year with a special holiday commentary on John McTiernan's Die Hard. We thank you one and all and wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. But a team of terrorists. You want money. What kind of terrorists are you? Who said we were terrorists? Have their own holiday plans. And I'm telling you, you just got to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. But the one thing they didn't plan on was New York cop John McClane. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? yippee ki mother... And you'll have it! They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Lady, do I sound like I'm ordered a pizza? Come to Papa, honey. Are you really an American? Only if New Jersey counts. What does he think he's doing? Good job. He's an easy guy to like. Welcome to the party, pal. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis. Die Hard. Welcome back, everybody. I want to introduce our guests or have our guests introduce themselves. I'm Mitch Bryan. I'm John Engel. I'm Aaron Hamerbeck. I'm Jason Heck. And I'm Todd Norris. So this is a Christmas party. Yeah. And what I'd like, every, yeah, whatever I want everybody to do, if, if you are going to actually sync this up, I don't know who does that. But if you are, let the 20th Century Fox logo and fanfare go, and as soon as it fades out, hit pause. And then, um, and, and then once you have done that, we will start this thing. I'll give you a count, a three, two, one countdown. Three, two, one, go. And we're off with the Gordon Company Silver Pictures production. So I want to talk a little bit throughout this about the novel that this came from, uh, Roderick Thorpe's novel, which was a sequel to his uh, novel, The Detective, which had been made into a movie with Frank Sinatra. And apparently Lloyd Levin, who was one of uh, Larry Gordon's producing partners, uh, was the main producer behind trying to get this thing to happen and got Jeb Stewart to come in and do a draft, apparently with the, on the only condition that he would make sure it stayed a Christmas setting. But uh, apparently Roderick Thorpe was inspired by seeing the movie The Towering Inferno and had a dream that night of a guy being chased through a building by gunmen and then turned that into this sequel, uh, which features a retired Leland, so we've got a much older 
protagonist in the book going to reconcile with his daughter whose last name is Gennaro and um, that obviously has been changed they did have to offer it to Frank Sinatra because of uh, sequel legalities so thank God we didn't have a 70 year old Frank Sinatra running around in this movie <laughs> running around slowly running five million bucks for Bruce Willis for this movie which was kind of unheard of after Stallone and Schwarzenegger and a lot of other big names passed on it five million bucks for a TV star to be in this movie which was a what a, f- a fifth or a sixth of the budget so that was a, a big chunk of change and he was filming Moonlighting at the same time because I know a friend of mine had a deal to write a movie for him and went to visit him in the trailer at the Die Hard set and said that he was just exhausted and it's kind of amazing the energy he's able to project if you know you think about the fact that he's been shooting all day and then he would come over and he would shoot all night basically on Die Hard and I think the the his exhaustion and unavailability on the schedule often uh, caused Stephen D'Souza to have to beef up the script a little bit in other places when they're shooting other scenes and getting a little bit more life into other characters, which may or may not have made the movie. <laughs> really, when you think about it, that's one one aspect about this movie that I think really carries it along is uh, much like we discussed with the Hunt for Red October last month. Uh, there's this character all through. There's moments all through. Everybody gets one. And it really carries us from high point to high point. You know, I really love that because I feel like the point of view of this film is a little unknown, uncertain. I love this movie because of the bad guys. And I think a lot of people love this movie because of the bad guys, not necessarily for John McClane. And um, it, it gives us sort of an omniscient point of view. Like we know more than pretty much any other character what's going on and I think that adds something so John I agree I think that you know kind of filling in those holes with uh, you know a more rich characterization of of other characters I think really helps this film otherwise I think it would just be um, maybe just a forgettable action film you know the book was written in first person I mean it was written with one perspective with only you never left the main character so that's a really amazing expansion that has happened uh, turning it into a movie is to give all these other characters their moments. I can't believe Ellis actually didn't say a little brie and a little blow instead of a little mulled wine. <laughs> Ice aged brie, cocaine. he says. What was that, John? Ice aged brie, he says. I never could understand. When I was 14, 13, when I first saw this movie, I was like, what the hell is he talking about? There is a coke snorting Ellis in the book too. Oh really? Yeah. I remember from the the, uh, the somebody told me that in the book he says now we have a machine gun to try and fool them a little bit into thinking there's more than one dude running around the skyscraper. That's like the one thing I know about the book. I did want to say about this. I I've seen this movie a million times. It feels like I've been watching it since I was young, and so sometimes I take certain elements of it for granted. And watching it recently, um, sort of in preparation for this, I, I had never really thought about the fact that the movie actually grants Holly first perspective on the marriage. I, I, I think that's an interesting choice. We actually don't know anything about John McClane when we first meet him, other than he's been a cop for 11 years and he doesn't like flying. We get her point of view on the marriage in this way, in that she's expecting him, she wants him to come. She also doesn't trust him that much, apparently. And, you know, we get the nice camera move with the reveal that he's, the, uh, in fact, her husband. 
and then a nice little setup there with the with the photo going down but i just i don't know i just thought that was interesting she gets the first say in the marriage in a way without directly addressing it and the spare bedroom made up right so it's not like she's expecting a, a complete fairy tale happy reunion evidently yeah, but they're, we're not there yet. When we get to that scene, we can talk about how they're both playing a game, a little bit of a game with each other about that. I think both of them are hoping for the for the master bedroom, but uh, they have to play games with each other. Willis has said that they didn't quite know what to do with John McClane for a lot of the movie, that he was kind of figuring it out as he went along, that he was a guy who had some real self-loathing issues, didn't much like himself, wasn't that great of a guy, and was going to go through some kind of a epiphany through this experience, but that wasn't in the initial uh, conception. They weren't sure what, what kind of a tough guy we were going to have, and I'm sure casting was part of that too, because up until they cast Bruce Willis at more or less the last minute, they were thinking much more in terms of Arnold Schwarzenegger, muscle-bound action hero of the 80s. And I remember when I first saw the movie, this was the most refreshing thing about it, was that this was an everyman. The movie was way bigger than him. The, the adversaries were way bigger than him. And he really had to adjust. And it was a very human story in that sense. And it's interesting, right here in this moment, we get a visual representation of that, right? Because he gets the limo ride, but he rides in the front seat. Right away telling you he's like us. He's not comfortable being the, the guy in the limo. Yeah, and that line so of dialogue is, you know, this is, oh, it's okay, my, it's my first time riding in one. And, right. I, and I think it's, it's up for debate who actually uh, molded John McClane into the sort of working class hero. I mean, I think McTiernan has taken credit for pushing the script in that direction. I've even heard ridiculous stories of Joel Silver kind of, uh, you know, spitballing and coming up with the name Argyle. And I don't know what's true and what's not, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, there, there seems to be a very concerted effort of exposition in the beginning to make sure that we realize that he's an everyman or a, a working class guy that sits up in the front seat with his limo driver. I drove on that street to work every day for about six or seven years that I lived in L.A., so it always cracks me up when I see that point of view shot at the window of the car driving up that street in that traffic. Did you ever take a meeting there at the... At the yes, tower, at Fox yeah. Plaza, really? I had, I had lawyers in that office. Sure, was It seems like a lot. A lot of people I know have said, "Yeah, I had a meeting in there once." I'm like, "Wow!" Seems like they I would be it. like completely blown away. I think if I got a meeting in there, but it seems like a pretty regular spot for business. That shot of the building and the shape of the building echoes the logo for the Nakatomi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, corporation. You know, speaking of logos, um, the silver logo I was reading um, is uh, based on a Frank Lloyd Wright um, house. And I love how the interior of Nakatomi looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright. Like, it looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright sculpture, you know, just like everywhere you look. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think based it on is... that falling waters mm. um, yes. structure. And, and silver bought that house, the really famous house that's up by Griffith Park that they use in Day of the Locust, that they used in Blade Runner. Um, Joel Silver lived, bought that house and lived in it for years. He was uh, pretty obsessed about modern architecture, and especially Frank Lloyd Wright. Was that the exterior for House on Haunted Hill, the early, the first? Yes, yes it was. Okay. Yep, that's the, that's the house. Okay. And I'm pretty sure the, um, the I'm forgetting, is Indonesian Project, the model we see is also a Frank Lloyd Wright model. It is, yep. Cool. Um, that they just... 
Yeah, like apparently they're doing. They're still working with Frank Lloyd Wright in 1988. Apparently. Well, wasn't the idea that it was the idea that you know Japan uh, basically coming in and buying up American property, et cetera, et cetera, and the they literalized that by them transplanting falling water onto the ex, you know, the 30th floor of the Nakatomi Plaza. I think that was the the gag. Cute toy. <laughs> Really seems kind of like a, a dick move on the part of this guard here. Not to just tell them the only people here are, on, are in one place. It's just like, you know, whoever you're looking for is on the 30th floor. But he waits until the end of this uh, this little journey through the touchscreen before he tells them. Oh, by the way, yeah, you were always going to find them in this one place. Yeah, that's right. They're the only ones left in the building. That's right. Like everybody's up there. Yeah, he just puts him through that. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe because he's really he's really proud of the touchscreen technology. He wants everyone to experience it. Either that, or he feels like the technology has robbed him of any responsibility. You know, because he's got that line <laughs> that says, "Yeah, if you leave and help you find your zipper." Maybe things like you know, make them do the hard work because I got nothing to do. Yeah. Could be. This is all establishing geography. Like, you know, the, it's cool that in the first act, you you know, everybody will uh, give the movie a chance. You know, you, the movie hasn't happened long enough for us to uh, think it's going downhill. So McTiernan is smart, and everything is actually setting up geography that we will need to know later when, when it all goes down. Auditory as well. The I've always liked that you get that ding of the elevator, which seems throwaway, but it becomes a very important sound to us throughout the film uh, to give us expectation of things to come and so forth. He looks so out of place. It's great. Immediately. He looks out of place. Not just lost and looking for his wife, but like this is not his environment Mm -hmm. at all. (laughs) And this is obviously one of the sets. There are not a lot of sets in this movie, but this is one of them. It's also funny, yeah, as part, of the, as part as of the fish-out-of-water idea, he's wearing a jacket, and he has a coat <laughs> that he apparently brought to L.A., which I think is kind of funny. He just doesn't understand the weather. It's, it's December. You don't need to bring two coats. And he doesn't like champagne, which is great. Well, he I, takes I it sort of just because it's there. Something. Oh, boy. Let's say a couple things about James Chiquita. If you have not seen uh, who plays um, who plays uh, the, the the boss here, Takagi. Mr. Takagi, uh, J- Mr. Takagi, uh, he is in a tremendous film called The Crimson Kimono. If you haven't mm-hmm. seen that, you should. Directed by Sam Fuller, uh, he was born in uh, in Hawaii. He was a Marine, uh, U.S. Marine in the Korean War. He was also a, a pop singer. Didn't speak Japanese until he went to Japan to work for Toho Records and had to learn some Japanese at that point. Uh, and he's just an amazing anchor, I think, to this. It, 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 what happens to him is so unexpected because he brings such weight and charm and decency to the to the role. Yeah, you you could expect him to be to go mano a mano with with Hans later, right? It would be him versus Hans. Not Holly. Holly versus Hans is the unexpected take, I think, uh, at least from an 80s point of view. (laughs) 
I sort of couldn't believe they made this joke about Pearl Harbor. It just seemed like, wow, he's really got quite the sense of humor. Especially for <laughs> Shigeta, who had was in um, Midway as Admiral Nagumo and had all four of his aircraft carriers blown out from under him. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> That's a nice moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really slows down and takes takes time for that moment when they see each other and when they when they are reunited. Which they also a, want to take the time to let you see her maiden name on the door too. So there's, it's a nice moment that has that one little sticking point right in the frame too. I just I love the the tempo of this film and how it all kind of occurs this one night. You know, it's and and the way that the sun is setting is so like, you know, just crimson and golden. And it's, it's got that wonderful, like sort of noir effect of the blinds on her face and everything. There's something very romantic about that opening sequence that it's like, you know, we're not going to see very much of them together throughout the rest of the film. So these like together moments are, are really important. Yeah, I think one crucial part of the success of this movie is Jan de Bont's cinematography. Um, I mean, his the 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 visual look of this film between the, I mean, basically the one-two punch of McTiernan and Jan de Bont working together, as you would also see in Hunt for Red October. It's it's one of the things that inspired me to be a filmmaker. I I already knew I wanted to make movies, but this look is still in my mind about the best Hollywood can get. I don't know if you top this kind of stuff. It looks great. And so here, and the, Michael Kamen's uh, score. I would just add quickly that we've got the next uh, iteration of the uh, of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, which was being being played in the background, but also underpinned the first time we saw the truck coming and driving in. And so it it counterpunches diegetic and non diegetic versions of of that piece, and that's going to work through the entire film. I just wanted to uh, come back to the topic we had earlier about them playing games with each other a little bit here. Um, I don't think that he says he's going to stay at Cappy's. Cappy retired. I don't think so, right? He definitely tells Argyle he has no idea what he's going to do um, if this doesn't work out and they make a deal that he'll get taken to a hotel. So I don't think the Cappy thing's real. And then I don't believe that the guest bedroom thing is real from her point of view either. She's just trying everybody. They're just playing little games with each other trying to show they're not over eager, that they've got other plans, that this is just to get together for the kids, whatever it is they're trying to relate to each other. But you can tell that they both, that the master bedroom is the idea, they hope. But then he's got to mess it up, man. Yeah, not like, if he he's real, fighting like this, it didn't. No, he, and he didn't have to do this at all. Like, he's, he's a complete asshole here. Well, I think, um, I don't know, it, it always comes down to the fight about is it a Christmas movie or not? And I, I love a redemption story. And I think that like without the without him starting off as an asshole, there's no redemption at the end, right? Oh, there's sure. no beautiful moment where he's really emotionally vulnerable later in the film. It's like you get to see Bruce Willis doing great Bruce Willis work. And I don't know that Arnold Schwarzenegger would have had <laughs> that vulnerability that he that he can do and and again it just you know pays off so much in the end um with him and with powell i think powell is is the ultimate um you know redemption but but yeah starting him off as an asshole i think is what um adds to the pleasure of the redemption at the end 
Pacific Courier, which will be uh, in Die Hard with, uh, with a vengeance, it is Atlantic Courier, is the oh. truck that actually blows up at the beginning of that movie. Mm. A I little, didn't realize that. A little what we call a fecal duality. Yeah. To, they didn't uh, know that an ambulance was going to come out of this truck yet, and so I guess the truck's not really big enough to house an ambulance. Somebody must have watched the Anderson tapes while doing rewriting and came up with that idea. Yeah, I think uh, the ambulance... I think the ambulance is way, yeah, a big rewrite thing. Because <laughs> you even get a shot of them coming out of the truck. And there's no way. There's just no way. So here's another musical idea as the sleigh bells become prominent once uh, mm-hmm. old Carl comes through the door. They're going to describe the great 1980s L.A. Lakers, who I believe were in the middle of a three-peat at the time that this was made. And they kill John Larroquette's brother. Really. Nice camera work just, right there. I just I love that little low angle of, of him, kicking the guy's chair back. Mm-hmm. Another weird piece of trivia. This is a uh, little Tony here. Tony that was actually the Hans Gruber's character name was like it was like Little Red Tony Gruber. <laughs> <laughs> they changed it to Hans. There's a Hans Gruber in one of the Flint movies, which I always thought oh, wow. was interesting. That was that was at Fox. So I wonder. Like the hockey so, puck is even necessary here with the it, unarmed it, guard, right? Exactly. Why does he do that? I, it's only because they're setting up the thing, the stun grenade to be used later. Because right. there was no reason he needed to do that if he could just turn around the corner and pop him. See the... L, the is it nope, empty? There's no ambulance back there. Yeah, the camp it's must <laughs> You know, this, this sort of, this cut right here, I don't know. There's just, uh, this be, became a cliche. The... Uh, basically dolly pullback of the, the the team i'm sure it had been done before this but um, the very stylishly dressed yeah team mm-hmm. you know they're, they're making us like these guys which is really one of the real pleasures of this movie you, you can't really hate everybody you kind of root for them a little bit really i don't know <laughs> no no really i i like these guys oh i'm obsessed well, with them hmm. yeah uh, yeah i don't know i the alan rickman um, I just I think he's just scrumptious and there's just there's something so deliciously um, evil about him and you, if you notice like all of the bad guys with their long flowing hair they look more traditionally like uh, you know the, the action star than Bruce Willis you know with his like right. kind of you know not I not dad bod I, I you know but they, they're like you know that with their flowing hair and everything they just they, they present themselves a little bit more as sort of the traditional um, 80s action action heroes. <laughs> hmm. Do we think this guy is some disgruntled Texas mercenary that they found, that they mm-hmm. hired to man the front gate? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gotta find one American. They got Theo and they've got him. I always thought he looked a little bit like Huey Lewis. A little, yeah. Oh, too, totally. Oh, yeah, I te- agree. Yeah, he's definitely got a Huey Lewis thing. Him and Theo are the only Americans, right, in the crew. Yeah, so although William the... Van Homburg, uh, he his character's name is James, oddly enough. Now, Andreas Wisniewski. <laughs> and here's was... another musical idea. We've got uh, Winter Wonderland in a mm-hmm. minor key. Here comes a really bad yeah. wig, too. Look at that terrible stuntman wig on, on for that shot right there. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Oh, his hair's different. Oh, my gosh, you're right. <laughs> Jeez. He was so great as Necros in uh, The Living Daylights, and here he is as kind of a geeky techno-terrorist. (laughs) 
You know why this movie's better than The Living Daylights? Uh, it, no Joe no John, John Glenn? <laughs> There's about a million reasons, I think. <laughs> no John Glenn would be paramount, however. You know, in, in college, uh, I made a, a spoof of Die Hard called Die Easy, which I, is the most clever title ever. But mm-hmm. uh, but I, I played the world's skinniest action hero, and it was basically me wearing that, that T-shirt <laughs> running around UMKC. I assume it was only about one minute long. You died immediately, right? (laughs) Well, that's probably how it should have been. (laughs) God, bathroom phone. That's luxury back then. The bad guys were exchange students that were uh, holding (laughs) holding people hostage unless they got their degrees. (laughs) Very inside baseball kind of stuff. I never quite understood when she says he's got his eye on my executive bathroom or something she wants she wants his job right i know but she's got a pretty awesome bathroom in her office like he must have a really nice bathroom i guess yeah now of course this is the stupidest move like so he just doesn't care that the i assume this sets off all alarms right rivalry going on here big brother torturing little brother i mean how's he going to explain to hans if he if he cuts that too soon, you know, how is he going to explain that? That seems just very careless. But he's a loose cannon, see? Oh, man. It's Both ca- actors, former ballet dancers, too. Yeah. Ah. Good enough fully repudiating his role as Daniel Hochleitner from Witness right now. <laughs> hey, was Argyle the kid in the Blues Brothers who tried to steal the guitar? Yes! yes! At Ray yes. Charles's place? Okay. Also part of the second wave of head of the class students, I believe. Hmm. I second kinda, wave, as we call them. <laughs> the uh, the, the uh, J- Jimmy, the what's his name? Jimmy Connolly class, not the Howard Hesman class. Was Jimmy Connolly, is that his name? What was his name? The comedian, Scottish comedian, anyway. Billy Connolly. Billy, thank you. Thank God you could carry that gun on the plane. So literally the first action wow. beat. Well, other than the, guys, the guard getting shot in the... It, it's notable how long it takes for this to become an action movie. Mm-hmm. Or when we actually hear our uh, villain speak, it's like mm-hmm. a half hour into the film before he before he says anything. And there's some '80s gratuitous nudity. Yeah. <laughs> Boobs. Mm-hmm. One of three Playboy playmates in this movie, apparently. That's I read. It's like okay. I had a student from Iceland who had that very jacket and ponytail. <laughs> 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 this was the, these were the this was the LA of uh, of all the Icelandic invasion. You know the the style of this movie has become so uh, absorbed by the action filmmaking style that exists now that we forget that this kind of um, steady can whip pan sort of uh, look was not maybe with the exception of James Cameron, but it wasn't really the action movie look until this film. Um, I don't quite know how to explain it, but there's a certain fluidity and to the camera, little movements even like that, that are just different than what came before. It's almost dance-like. I mm-hmm. mean, we we have two villain, you know, villains played by dancers, and yeah, that you know, the, these opening sequences of them taking over, it's almost rehearsed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's so perfect and 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 stylized and and dance-like. It's 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 actually really beautiful. I I was reading up a, um about why 
women enjoy this film um, because this film did really really well in the box office and that's really primarily due to the fact that it interested women as well and part of that I think is due to the humor you know it's, it's a it's funny as well as action-packed but I think it also sort of that that beautiful quality of the film I think um, is is appealing to female audiences in, in ways that maybe you know an action film that didn't have a, a real interest in making a, a lovely film would wouldn't wouldn't do as well mm-hmm. you know those camera moves are all part and parcel of the thriller and Jeb Stewart said he didn't know anything about action movies and so he thought of this thing as a thriller when he was writing the first draft and I think that's part of where those moves come from because you know Walter Hill's camera who was the, he was the leading action director at this point his camera hardly ever moves and there's something about this fluidity I also would like to just say here quickly that the backstory that we're given about Takagi right here is so detailed. This mm-hmm. throwaway about him having been interned at Manzanar as a kid. Like, this is the kind of thing that a terrorist would be aware of, the, the political dynamic. And it also speaks to this question of him being very American because he's got five kids, which is very not Japanese. You know, you get you have two kids in Japan. You know, I mean, this is, this is a guy who is very much... Um, assimilated into American version of the corporate culture. And I just think that this scene is so smart, and it says that Hans is smart, and it says the writers are smart. Uh, it's one of the things that wins me over with this picture. Well, there's also the fact that he's invested in this American way of life while also being, having been imprisoned by America during yeah, the war exactly. as being interned in Manzanar. So... It's. I don't know exactly what that says, but it is. It does tell you a lot about uh, how much thought they put into the backstory. It works with this theme of the ambivalence of the '80s too, because mm-hmm. this is a movie that is both reflective of the '80s and hypercritical, and also kind of revels in certain things about '80s consumerism and high fashion. It's, I just think it's the great. It's the greatest '80s movie ever made. <laughs> yeah. And again, that Arafat reference uh, playing into this guy being the terrorist. They're really working that gag so that we get this beautiful reversal. And here we realize this guy's got a sense of humor, mm-hmm. which makes him even more endearing as a villain. <laughs> Taking the time to embrace his charm is, again, something very thriller-esque. It's Hitchcock would do this, where right. we give you a villain that you actually like to spend time with. Yeah, this is definitely James Mason, right? Uh, yes. If, if if Hitchcock's making this movie. I watched um, 
before before I watched the the film again. I watched the uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine um, episode. I think it's like uh, Yippee Kayak. Um, and uh, you know, if you watch the 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 show, you know that Jake Peralta is obsessed with Die Hard. But uh, the episode, he he keeps thinking that it's you know, oh, I'm 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 in Die Hard because these thieves have taken over a, a, a store, and he's so disappointed because they're Canadians and they're like not nearly as cool as Hans and all of that. I just I love it. It's so funny. Right. continuity goof here the trees aren't moving in these wide shots and then it, on the close-ups the, the trees are blowing back and forth that's i'm no, normally not a continuity person but i've noticed that in some of these shots there's a and alan rickman's first movie right he'd done a little bit of tv before this and mostly stage right right yeah, they saw him on stage in dangerous liaisons and they thought this is the guy his first movie Holy cats. This is very signature John McTiernan, the, the way the camera kind of slides. It's not a direct, it's not a Spielberg push in because it kind of slides a little bit as well. I will point out, I don't know if any of you had the, there was a two disc Fox DVD of Die Hard that came out in the early 2000s that had an option to re-edit certain scenes of the movie based on footage that they hadn't used. Yeah, I remember that. And, I, and there's a version of this that had some really severe camera push-ins at certain moments. Like, like you could hear, you could feel, you could actually see the dolly unlocking or whatever, that like <laughs> kind of jarring move you get right before a big zoom in or push-in. I always liked playing with that one. It was, uh, it was fun. This camera work is so great on the floor, following him around and stuff. Yeah. It's great. McTiernan mm-hmm. apparently read the first draft of the script where they were in fact terrorists and not thieves and mm. felt like it wasn't charming enough and it needed a lightness to it and so the idea of then revealing them to be thieves instead of terrorists was one of the things that made him want to do the movie and that in brought a lot of entertainment value to it <laughs> I love the wager between Theo and Carl it's great <laughs> And Hans is annoyed. Like they do this all the time. Uh, another bet. So what's the deal with this table, by the way? I was going to point it out. This zigzag table—it's like perfect for pandemic dining, actually. Yeah. Uh, I noticed like a little before it it's follows time. Follows the logo of the company, right? Does it? It just looks like so. a long zigzag, like a lightning bolt. But maybe you're right. It wouldn't work very well as a boardroom table, though, because half of no. the people wouldn't be able to see you. <laughs> no, that was a shock. To you. Oh, totally, totally shocking. Oh. That was a shocking totally. moment. It totally blew my mind. And I'll there's the that. dollar. <laughs> <laughs> was it just one dollar? It can't just be one dollar. Yeah, it's, well, it's like the that's all I've got. Brothers. We haven't stolen the, the money brothers. yet. <laughs> I could watch Goodenough in anything as long as he's moving. It's just he's so mm-hmm. fun to look at. Oh, he's the scene. Great. Well, it's later when he's on he's the roof. Great. God, he it's just gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some of the blocking in that, uh, the rooftop gunfight is, is insane, and he's very graceful through all of it. It makes him more menacing. 
you know yeah. i mean that the fact that he's not this like meatball chunky guy you know he's he's <laughs> like he's almost like spider like it's 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 wonderful this got a huge laugh <laughs> okay so Ar- this is argyle's first day on the job or at very least his first day right driving limos for his boss and he just wants to get fired, right? I mean, there's <laughs> not, like, how is he going to get away with uh, just hanging out, drinking the booze? Or the well, I thought it was funny. It's like he doesn't give a shit. I just think there's so many unexpected laughs in this movie when you're mm-hmm. watching it for the first time that it really charms you. I think that that helps with like the the tempo of the film because I had forgotten that it was over two hours long. I you know it, growing up watching it and you know watching it you know every, every year around Christmas. I just I it doesn't feel like it's over two hours, and I think that it's because of that wonderful tempo shift to add exposition, to add movement, and then and then like it. I think it by contrast those action sequences or you know when when somebody gets their head shot. Um, is is I don't know. It just it keeps the pace. This film has phenomenal pace. Well, you, it's interesting you bring that up now because I've always found this to be a very curious moment, where the movie just completely stops for him to look mm. at this, and so much so he's even kind of zoned out on it. And then we pick back up with the dialogue again. Mm-hmm. I've always found that very curious choice, but very cool. It's like this is the whole he this is his holy grail. So we're going to give him a moment to take it in. And then get back on track. Well, and it's also set up for what's going to be the big reveal when the power right. gets cut. Mm-hmm. Right. And we have to kind of remember that. What we call our Dukeman moment, if you will. Yes, we will. <laughs> I will get to him. So we're going to have some serious mouth acting from Bruce Willis in these moments where he's pursing his lips and grin, you know, pulling his lips over his teeth. And he's... he's I just got arguably pushing a little bit. I gotta say, I just love these whip pans. Boy, I could make a whole movie with just whip pans like that. <laughs> <laughs> and the use of the frame, have, even him going down the stairs like that, and just w- being on the extreme right, uh, McTiernan and John DeBont use widescreen better than just about anybody. It's so good. Sorry to everyone who had to see this on VHS for the first time. Oh, that's lost me. all that scope aspect ratio. Like the first thirty times I saw this movie was on VHS. It's mm. I, there are still bits I'll notice that was like, yeah, that's new to me a little bit. You know, relatively new. And so this is really are in the real building, the under construction building hmm. that is not a set. So Mitch, where in the, previously had we had a character that talked to himself so much as John McClane? Is this fairly innovative for how to accomplish this one-man movie? Like he's he doesn't have anybody to act against, so I don't know. I'm trying to remember if there's anything before him where people somebody talked to himself as much as he does. I don't know. I I I pretty much hate it except when it's funny, and I'm glad when it is funny. Sometimes like, it's emotionally. I think it works emotionally too, though. Like he's having kind of a psychotic break. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's, he's freaked out. That's yeah, what, yeah. That's it. Makes more of the character. I mean, I think I would be. I probably wouldn't be co- as coherent as him. I would probably just be cussing a lot. But um, I would probably be a lot like this if I was in this situation. Here's a cinematographer's nightmare of uh, reflecting glasses and trying not to get the crew. Reflected mm-hmm. back in yeah. there. Yeah. And it's smoked, smoked up a little to give it some depth. 
Wisniewski is so huge that MP5 looks just like a toy in his hands. He's like six four and a half. But with tiny feet, obviously. You'll have to give us the occasional weapons check, Jason. Let us know what everybody's carrying Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting because the terrorists have these weapons that seemed in, in 1988 really exotic and fancy versus sort of the plain Jane American, you know, M16s and stuff. And again, it, it, it's designed to indicate a technical proficiency and an expertise that the kind of yokel Americans don't really have. Okay, we got to talk about this moment. To me, it's kind of one of the only dumb moments. I mean, what they just couldn't come up with another way to get this going than McLean just inexplicably hitting him, blindsiding him. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't work. It, it's just one of the very few places where this movie doesn't work. <laughs> He's got a drywall headache. <laughs> and his size eight feet on that six four body. Yeah, it's a little hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> Just this, a smidge. Guy has got tiny feet. <laughs> His feet should be swimming in the guy's shoes, but no, they're not. That was probably answers. in the that was probably in the first draft, and and Bruce Willis didn't want to have seem like he had small feet, so they reversed it. <laughs> His little dancer's feet. <laughs> it looks like we're up to um, undershirt number two. Mm-hmm. There is a series of undershirts that change and get dirtier and darker. I swear it looks like he's wearing camouflage by the time we get to the end. <laughs> and Clarence Gilliard Jr., who had just been uh, sundown in Top Gun a few yeah. years earlier, and he's given uh, substantially more to do in this one, which is kind of nice because he's pretty great in it. I always think he seems a little guilty about Yeah, the furtive the look lighter. with the lighter cracks me up. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, killing a guy's okay, but taking a lighter, now that's where you're going to take his Zippo. It's a, you, yeah, it's taking his Zippo. That's what it is. Yeah, the Zippo. If it was a Bic, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> you're supposed to steal Bics. Zippos. But this is great, too, because this is the first. Our, our first indicator not only of of his humor which is obviously note that smile a wry sense of humor but also his own expertise which is great this guy knows how to how to be a monkey in the wrench and a fly in the ointment mm-hmm. so he does know a lot about elevators yeah i'm not sure i would have any idea how to do this but you know if you're a new york cop you probably got to do stuff like this from time to time a lot of elevators in new york there are that's true but he's smart you know he's got his pole he's got the the screwdriver which is a nice little touch just kind of indicates in, uh, that he's got his own expertise to match up against the high tech stuff the 80s movies had gotten so bloated in terms of heroes you know that I just remember when this came out it was like oh my god this is kind of like a 70s movie this is like three days of the condor this is a guy actually having to think his way out of the problem mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another great line for Hans. Wow. Won't be joining us for the rest of his life is a sensational line. A real deft commitment to her point of view. This is a mm-hmm. subjective shot. Mm-hmm. We're really seeing the world through Holly's eyes right now. 
And there's Fritz, <laughs> who has only acted in this movie and nothing else, an actor named Hans Buringer. And this was his only movie. I don't know why, because he's kind of great at getting killed. <laughs> this bit with one brother seeking revenge for his younger brother is out of the book. I do have to ask the question, though. Did Holly just now remember John was there? <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, she kind of goes, wait a minute. Was she just so caught up in all this and she's not used to having him around? I think it's fairly forgivable. <laughs> but, man, it's kind of weird at the same time. She hadn't looked for him or anything. So do you think that they had plans for this arm um, list to continue throughout the movie as some sort of like checklist that he might use because we never do see it again I kind of wonder if they just dropped the idea we never see that again well he gets he or did he, uses or did it he when realize he was going to sweat it off anyway? he uses it when he talks to Hans on the microphone and ticks off the names of the guys yeah but he but he just knows that he doesn't refer to his arm does he no but he that's just knows he, that that's how he I know. knows it from I'm talking about visually though I'm did they have, I mean, to show that, I would think that they might have had some sort of visual idea. It could have been an afterthought. Let's see if he's yeah. got his, is it marked on his arm now? That could have been. I don't think it's ever, you ever see it again in the movie at all. Yeah. Nope, it's not. It was on his right arm. And there, it's not there. Invisible ink. <laughs> like I said, he could have just sweated it right off, too. It's like, wait a minute, why did I use, use Sharpie? <laughs> So this is such a great bit with the centerfold because you don't really know what the geography is, but once you get back to the centerfold, mm -hmm. you know he knows what the geography yeah. is. And, of well, course, a slight character beat there. Of course, you know, all this going mm -hmm. on, he can't resist looking at the centerfold. Now, is oh, that a, a little strange love touch? Is one of that centerfold one of the actresses who's in the movie? Mm. I don't think so. I think that's the, one of the three. So there's the girl in the in the um, airport that jumps on the boyfriend. There's the woman that was having sex in the office, and then that one was the third one. I think they're all separate. I don't recall their names. That framing Ellis like hiding behind her. <laughs> yes, it's beautiful. And I really like the way that the scene resolves with Hans and Carl. And Hans kind of going, okay, I, I will give him to you if if this thing plays out the way I want it to. You kind of wonder throughout the movie how much power Hans has over Carl. Sometimes it doesn't feel like he does. It kind of feels like they could go head to head at some point because uh, he doesn't listen to Hans that much, and sometimes he flat out rebels against him. It makes him a better villain, right? Makes yeah, him scarier. I think so too. And to have this, you know, Aaron was pointing out earlier, the physical nature of, of Carl. I think the fact that he's led by his emotions is an interesting uh, aspect of him as a villain as well. I'm not sure. Do we get that a lot? I mean, the, the revenge story is one thing, but in this kind of a movie, he's just entirely, he doesn't care about the money or the plane at all anymore. And by comparison to Hans, too, I mean, his, his emotional outbursts are are really explosive. I mean, we get a little mm -hmm. bit of Hans. Uh, I, I actually really love unhinged Hans. Um, but by comparison, Hans is so stoic and in control. 
Can the police be any more stupid <laughs> than they are in this movie? Oh my God, they are so useless all through this. Thank any, God for Al Powell. Any institutional figure in this movie other than Powell. Everything about L.A. is apparently really stupid, like across the board. And it's funny because then two movies later, we see complete like human humanity and, and competence from the New York Police Department, right? Like, Dired with a Vengeance, New York, they're pretty solid. And they yeah. all care about each other. And they're all trying to make the right choice for everyone. And um, it really seems to be, a, this seems to be like an anti-LA franchise. Also, and here we are 40 years ago when, remember the good old days when we used to hate institutions? Think mm-hmm. institutions are just a terrible problem and today we're longing for them because <laughs> they've been destroyed over the last four years it's like oh maybe they actually do do something maybe this movie contributed to that uh i don't know it did in that sense i would argue that that ronald reagan in the 80s got us to where we are now because mm-hmm. you know who was the guy with the art of the deal in the 80s donald trump I was like, does this guy do this to everyone that buys junk food in this convenience store? Yeah, or that's all they jackass. sell. It's like, what is wrong with this and guy? And Al just takes it. Al just rolls with it. It's amazing. He's, he's, oh, Drops a little Al money in the been, charity bin. I like that. Puts I know, I know. It's, it's, it's a little touch, kids. but it's nice. For the yeah. kids. For the kids. And of course, this upcoming shot will always be a historical uh, <laughs> moment. Marker. For, marker, because like... People still watch this movie so much, and more so from this era, is the Look gas price that. displayed. I mean, 77 the- cents a gallon. Oh, God. <laughs> oh God. I, I re- right about this time, time I started driving, gas was still about 80 cents or so. I used to go to thing. that store. Was well, that guy was working the there? Did he give you a hard time made? about your purchases at all? That guy was never there, thank God. <laughs> Aaron, is this what you're talking about with his... His, his walk right there with the gun. Yes. Look at how his head is complete. If you put a book on his head, the book wouldn't fall off. He is so graceful. It's awesome. He has a more dynamic move. That is amazingly graceful. But he has this more dynamic move that he does when uh, they get back inside. That I'll point that I always thought was just so badass when I was young. Like how he enters this gunfight inside is amazing. You can tell it's a Jan de Bont movie when, as we've seen all through the movie, when, like you said, the, the Venetian blind patterns or up here on the roof, the, the grid patterns being pr- projected from below on everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that you can tell when he shot Basic Instinct for Paul Verhoeven. You know, there's uh, grill patterns on the walls of every set in Basic Instinct as well. And in the submarines of Red October. Which just got a really good establishment of that staircase by the way i think that that another geographical setup even though we saw him running up it earlier but it's right here this is what i'm talking about the way carl comes in to the room just like so (laughs) smooth you know what it really sets up that fabulous fight scene at the end this movie oh god this movie is so aware of its pleasures and it just Mm -hmm. like slams them into you the whole time but that fight scene at the end is fantastic by comparison to bruce willis who's like just real kind of low into his body these these punching moves versus carl who's so like i don't know just just uh, trained yeah yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) well you know that he almost got his foot cut by the 
fan and that speaks to the foot thing that's going to be going on in this whole movie yeah, too. Yeah. so Aaron just made me think about how everything is set up you know there's constantly ideas being set up we're watching this silent right now but correct me if I'm wrong but when he sees that centerfold again and says girls isn't there a little music thing that goes bow, bow, bow? yeah, yeah it reminds me I was going to point that out earlier because I thought it was actually earlier but yeah it's it's very similar to the like a little Clapton lick from the lethal weapon sound yeah the lethal weapon twang yeah, <laughs> yeah. Todd, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is all hard light, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, probably a lot of it's coming from, well, I guess hard in the sense that, yeah, they, I think they're lighting it with old school airy Fresnels, but also probably putting Kinoflow tubes in all those shop lights as well. So, um, but yeah, definitely a more, it's it's not the modern approach. It's, it's starting to look a, a little dated in a way, although I still love the look. Yeah, you get some diffusion on the source lights when you see them, but but the light itself is actually very hard that's hitting these guys. Yeah, and I guess this is a matte painting uh, yeah. being added to the uh, live action. All but pre-digital, what we're about of course. To get, what we're about to get here is an actual accident. Um, the stunt man, what the, he was supposed to follow through with the plan as McLean seems to have intended it, was just to lower down as far as he could and get over to that other vent. But it gave way and he fell um, on the set and they reshot the uh, to have something to cut to where he catches the uh, where he catches the vent below. So I think that must be a, a point where they thought, oh, that that's just a little another exciting beat we could use. Let's just use it hmm. and shot the second bit of this. But we're not quite there yet. Has any gunsling ever been this long? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> ever. Oof. His Carl sense is tingling. That said, there are air vents that he crawls through in the book. So is this kind of the the dawn of the of the air vent in the action movie, or is do we go back to Bond films? Well, you got Doctor No, Doctor No, he definitely crawling around a little bit, uh, a much aliens a little bit, a couple years. Sure, this. Yeah. yeah. Alien. Oh yeah, right. I just wonder so though. The answer is no, Jason. <laughs> I just wonder if the uh, you know if if McTiernan if the you know. If if they knew that that was going to be the iconic moment, because it's so gorgeous, <laughs> that <Yeah. laughs> that light, the in his humor, and it's just it's it's fantastic. The vent scene, it's so iconic. I I just I always wonder if filmmakers know at the time, like oh this is what this movie is going to be known for. And Carl, yeah, anybody with his... watching this that doesn't know anything about it thinks, oh Bruce Willis movie star. It's like. Well, no, he was a TV no. star, and this was his first movie. That's why that $5 million is so surprising. Like, a lot of people weren't so sure about him. They didn't even put him on the poster at first. So it's kind of weird that they gave him $5 million, but... He has Carl, good again, agent, is, is, he has that incredibly exotic steer AUG, which is so space-age-looking compared to, you know, the American SWAT yokels who are running around with their M16s and getting 
tased by thorn uh, by rose bushes and he is just supremely confident with this incredibly exotic looking thing which sort of matches him in terms of lethality and beauty mm-hmm. it's such a great choice for him could have saved yourself a lot of trouble john if you just shot him right there Now the cavalry's here, so everything's going to be fine. <laughs> Another conceit from the book is that single pistol that the hero has, that he has on the plane. Uh, apparently, in the book, he is retired, and he shouldn't be carrying a gun, but he bluffs his way through with his badge because he's sort of insecure and carrying a gun anyway. He happens to have his gun with him. God, Takagi all over the door. God. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. But it's great. Again, it's great with the geography to revisit it, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's a really good touch. Just smart, smart, smart. <laughs> I love him. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the driveway is secure dispatch. I, I think maybe this will probably be about it. <laughs> The Stevie Wonder thing got a big laugh too in the That's, theater. Yeah. Man. <laughs> Look at them apostrophes flying with Eddie's dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I reckoned you'd be a calling anytime. Right. Evening, officer. How about some good corn liquor? I mean, he's just as folksy as could be. <laughs> That's who you want at the door. Of course, but it's yeah, a little this suspicious. Shot is great right here with him. Shoves his face right in the lens. Run, 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 and boom. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Why did Jan de Bont have to decide? I mean, speed was fine. Why did you have to make the dumb haunted house movie? You could have just, this could have been great. You could have just done this <laughs> and been like the best DP uh, for action movies ever. Instead, he just had to stretch. <sighs> So here comes a line I've used often just watching football with some friends. So <laughs> out of nowhere, just You've never score, bet 50 like, bucks I got 50 bucks bet on them assholes. Oh, yeah, it's not real. <laughs> just <laughs> I had two packs of bazooka on them assholes. And I have, unfortunately, like I have bet 50 bucks on a football game before, and it was the stupidest thing I ever did. Oh, man, I had one family size M&Ms on them assholes. It's more like it. And there, there's Vigo up there from Ghostbusters 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Willem van oh Homburg, who got famous in Germany as a wrestler. That might have been the first. to start acting. We might have just gotten our first Dutch angle in the movie right there when the camera panned mm. down. Because then as the movie goes on, the camera keeps tilting and tilting more and more. love how just suddenly urgent it gets it just gets so crazy yeah and the music score to interrupt this moment look at marco's badass move on rolling up onto the table <laughs> pretty great pretty great and with marco's demise willis wasn't firing what's called a flash paper gun he was firing full power blanks and and messed up his hearing Mm-hmm. Um, having it that close, but let's—I mean, this is easily the best gun, the meatiest, most satisfying gun noise since Ben Burt devised Indiana oh. Jones's hand cannon. It's yeah. just so great. It's like a 
thunder crack when he unloads this thing. And it's Verhoeven-y the way he gets the, the, the way they do it to me. This is just really, really yeah. accomplished. <laughs> Squibs everywhere in the legs and everything yeah. groin. Yeah. He goes out I, like Mr. Kenny. I read somewhere that they went out on a range in Texas and recorded all sorts of new gun sounds because they didn't like what was available in the sound libraries. Yeah, that, his gun, his his Beretta is just so great. And, and uh, Hans's huge assault rifle is, uh, Hans, um, Carl's huge assault rifle is incredibly bassy and satisfying too. I do have to point out real quick that uh, for the last, whatever, 32 years, I have not been able to hear Let It Snow without saying dumb to dumb delightful. <laughs> <laughs> not one time over the years. And he once ru- again, he Al ruined Powell or fails. enhanced that song. Oh, it was a really shocking cut uh, mm-hmm. in the theater. I remember the first time I saw and it. And on VHS, it's People so cropped, really you can't even tell what you're looking at. It's totally yep. ruined on VHS. Now, there's a, a little bit of a flub here with the sound design. He stops to say this, but the gunshots do not stop. The gunshot sound is still going on as he's saying that. That got a huge laugh as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Our guy got a lot of laughs. <laughs> we were lucky enough to see this the first time on the Fox scoring stage. And the sound system is so great in there. It was really something. Oh, Twinkies everywhere. The carnage. <laughs> See, now, these are, he went through a bunch of flowers. But then he's got this yellow. And when I was a kid and watching the crappy VHS, I thought he had smashed Twinkies all over. That's what I, I still thought that I, until this moment. I think those are just flowers. Hmm. I thought they were rubber gloves. <laughs> I didn't know. They kind of look like rubber gloves. rubber gloves. And one of our two titans of 80s assholedom who share the movie, the fact that these guys don't interact prevents a sort of crossing of the streams of the two great <laughs> assholes of 80s character actors in William Atherton and Paul Gleason. God bless this movie for getting them Dude, both. Yeah. Gleason and Atherton on the same screen would have dissolved the, the celluloid. It's just amazing to have both of them. I mean, wow, what a great pleasure. Mitch, I remember you and I and a lot of other people watching a real beat-up print of this at the Tivoli one time. And um, and Atherton, once he shows up, boy, the crowd just never could get enough of it. It was I'd never seen yeah. it. In the, I had never seen this in the theater, and I couldn't believe. I mean, I could, but I was like, wow, the reaction all this stuff is getting in a crowd is just so satisfying. And a little flub here, you can't interrupt somebody on the radio. They have to take their hand off the transmit button, so you can't really do that, but mm-hmm. it's still a nice touch. Starts throwing out the names. Just, yeah, it's great. But I like that he also apparently with that, before Willis called in, he had to apparently placate his guys who were concerned mm-hmm. about the cops showing up. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're right. Maybe he's not quite as in charge as as he, he would appear to be. You know, like that was Carl yeah. There could be a heist movie. Placating. Right. If the, if we, if we had the heist movie point of view, it could be there could be a lot of turmoil among the crew. You know, or a lot of secrets. Even these guys maybe didn't understand the plan that the cops are supposed to come. Obviously, some of them don't know anything about uh, the more the finer points of the plan. So. There was a hint of doubt in his voice when he said, you, you can break the code, can't you? So mm-hmm. that's, that's true. Stephen D'Souza said that when he did his rewrite, he approached it from a heist point of view. Like, he mm-hmm. approached it from the point of view of the, of the villains. 
to try to open it up and put us on their side as much as they could in terms of whether or not they would succeed at their heist. Yeah, it definitely is kind of an inverted heist movie. And McLean's seeming pretty cocky now, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, he's playing that at least. I think he wants to give... He's not going to give Hans a feeling of uncertainty. He's going to want to seem like he's sure of himself, but he, he betrays that often. You can see the fear in him. Do we think he would have stolen a truck? Do we really think he would have? <laughs> Do we, I mean, seriously, is he that he committed? Is he really? Is it? Is he just smell Pulitzer? And so he's he's gonna go for the truck no matter what. I mean, come he on. would have conned somebody else into stealing the truck. Because clearly Harvey's seen it. I mean, they've they've all seen this before with him. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> freaking Harvey Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so <laughs> And Mary Ellen Trainer, yep. nice yep. to see her. A favorite of Richard Donner. She was in like all the Lethal Weapons and Scrooge and Goonies. I like her a lot. Isn't she Robert Zemeckis' uh, wife? Yeah, and she was also the um, the anchor at the beginning of Back to the Future. Right. That tells us all we need to know about the uh, missing plutonium. And the evil housewife in uh, their Tales from the Crypt remake of And All Through the House. That's what I was going to say. That's when I learned that she was his uh, his wife was when that episode came out. I can't believe Hans didn't have more than one detonator. Like He's got everything <laughs> covered. So it's just crazy that there wasn't some redundancy. Like they wouldn't have bought two of those. But that's fine. I'm not mad I'm just saying I love this part too. another part where it kind of feels like Hans's power is limited he tells Theo don't waste time talking to me get to work right now what does Theo do as soon as the cops call turns off everything I gotta listen to this it's like suddenly wait what's going on I thought it was, uh, it was urgent but I love how the I love how all the the villains are are real kind of gossipy and and curious. They like stop everything. They got to see everything mm. that's happening there. It's kind of a fun aspect. It gives the movie a little energy. I believe that Extra John's energy. shirt has fully changed color. Now. <laughs> yeah, well, once he goes he's into wearing the, yeah. a green shirt. No, when he comes out of the vent, it's he's covered in soot or dust or however you wanna. As soon as he steps onto that um, desk coming out of the air vent, you see that his pants and his shirt are completely like brown. And I think it stays that way for the rest of the movie other than blood and such. Yeah, that little reference to Rambo. This movie was pitched as Rambo in an office building. And then once this movie was a hit, everything became right. die hard on a boat, mm -hmm. die hard into this, die hard. Until mm -hmm. at some point, somebody actually did go in and pitch die hard in an office building. <laughs> oh, no. Yep. Yep. Die hard in a daycare. <laughs> Die hard in a suburban home. Exactly. Die, die hard <laughs> in a, a greenhouse and nursery. Right. <laughs> Powell needs some medical attention. Yeah. And by LA's finest, I mean Deputy Chief Dwayne Robinson. Whew. So both Powell and Robinson are characters in the book. But uh, since it's all from McLean's point of view, we don't get any of this kind of interplay between them. 
Uh, I want to point out something real quick, uh, um, a correction on my part. In our last commentary during the Hunt for October, the guy that's kind of right hand here with Powell, who was also in uh, Hunt for October, his yeah, name is Anthony chief, Peck. Uh, the, uh, the, the XO on the Dallas, The right? XO on the, on the Dallas. His, the actor's name is Anthony Peck. He did, in fact, die, like I said. He had nothing to do with stunt coordination at all. I don't know where I got that. I felt like I heard that in a commentary. That guy right there. Um, he passed away in 1996 from cancer, but uh, he was just an actor. I don't know why I said he was a stuntman, so just wanted to correct myself. Don't you love how the deputy chief gets out of the car brandishing his badge? <laughs> <laughs> don't you just think that he holds it out there like his talisman of power? It's great. I know it's hard to believe, guys, but I am the deputy chief. In fact... Oh, my God, Paul Gleason. He's, I just... Uh, he's so great. Has to be really high on the list of stupidest cops in movie history. Mm-hmm. Just... Some of the things he says and choices he makes are just so unfathomably stupid. He has one of my fa- he has two of my favorite lines though about we'll need more <laughs> FBI and I hope that's not one of the I hope hostages. That's not a hostage. <laughs> he kills me. I love him. Well, he could be a fucking bartender for a while. all we know. It's also a classic line. As was Bruce Willis. Yes, and Bruce Willis was was it? And this weird thing where this guy punching out the dude on TV and then saying, "I'm not going to warn you again." Is it? Isn't that Lee Majors? I always thought that was Lee Majors, and that was they were watching an episode of The Fall Guy. I don't know what it is, but my best friend and I crack up because he punches the dude and then says, "Now I'm not going to warn you again." (laughs) That's right. He does. So we desperately try to figure out what they're watching. I swear it's the fall guy, but I, so what I always assumed, it really sounds like Lee Majors. If punching me is the warning, what then is the action that you will take? It just cracks me up. That guy behind Bonnie Bedelia looks like Christian Bale in American Psycho. Oh, yes, he does. Oh, yeah. I love this negotiation. It's just, it's just so great. He recognizes how good she is mm-hmm. at her job. Yeah, this is a great moment. Okay, the the subtitle said groups to the bathroom, but I always thought she said grips to the bathroom. <laughs> as in bringing well, us in grips to the bathroom. <laughs> well, you would have to have it if you're a hostage. <laughs> well, meaning that you need someone to escort you to the bathroom is what I thought she was <laughs> suggesting because if you're a hostage, you can't just go off on on your own. Don't you forget it. Well, Bill Kelso, and don't you forget it. Thornburg. Yeah, thank God he doesn't interview Deputy Chief Robinson. That would be crossing the streams on those <laughs> dudes. Just an asshole Armageddon. So here we go. Argyle again. Now he's just drinking the booze. Out You're of right. The- he's clearly not. <laughs> like he's, he's not wanting to have a second day on the job. Clearly. No. Getting drunk. He's probably got the bear drunk. Now, straight from the bottle. (laughs) Yeah, the car's got a CB and it's set to the terror. Yeah. Oh, the most incompetent SWAT team in history on their way. Hut, hut, hut. Right, quickly followed by the second most <laughs> incompetent in Die Hard 2, right? So Yeah, man, SWAT teams are just really incompetent in the Die Hard universe. We're going in. But it's isn't it isn't it gentle and sweet to look at how little body armor they're wearing and 
I mean, <laughs> right, think about right what now, guys look like now. And it's, right yeah, now, so cops weird. in Ferguson have a lot more armor and firepower than they did. Yeah, yeah. So Powell so, brings up a really good point here, right? He brings up a lot. Excuse and me, Robinson sir. Ignores them all. But what about the body? And this is like a really good point. And he's just like, ah, just probably. Yeah. I mean, the dumbest <laughs> response you could have to that. That feels like, like that was a plot talking? hole that then they just had to paper over with that line. Well, only Gleason's the guy. Like, if you need somebody to say something that ridiculous, there's your guy. Yeah. Like, I kind of buy that he might say something like that. But, yeah, you're right. It is like, he, surely there's more suspicion about what's going on up there. But. And I love his cigarettes light up, and that tells them that they're using the spotlights. That's great. Yeah. That's, a, that's just really, it's just little things that this movie is full of. If you are the bartender, I think you are. <laughs> You'll mix a cold one and just make, pray. Make yourself a Harvey Wallbanger. <laughs> make yourself a Harvey Johnson and pray. Fortify with chocolate bars if you need to. Whip pans, man. I'll tell you. I just get excited. I get excited. So this SWAT commander guy, that's mm-hmm. Bob Saget, right? <laughs> little Saget-ish, for sure. Funniest there's a lot of TGIF. There's a lot of TGIF on this police squad. So one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the... Um, you know, the idea, of course, of McLean as the American Western hero, you know, the rugged individual where the music score even sort of quotes an Aaron Copeland kind of sound. And of course, the villains are European and also the building they're in is Japanese. And there's a there's a definite kind of xenophobic air to this movie that we haven't talked about. <laughs> I love the beat. That's a great beat with the thorns. Yeah. <laughs> the SWAT guys. Yeah, the tough SWAT guys get caught on the thorns. Oh, and our and favorite comes henchman, the inimitable, yeah, Al Leon. Maybe the best kind of pointless moment in the whole movie. There's no point to this, but it's really great moment. <laughs> <laughs> he had a nice little run of movies, didn't he? Yeah. Yep. Lethal Weapon. Big, big trouble in Little China. It all looks so competent and busy, all these cops and their spotlights, right? Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Beautiful flares. Yeah, anamorphic lens flare. They, anamorphic flare. They said that they had actually, there were more modern anamorphic lenses that they could use in the 80s that didn't flare so much, but they actually did want that look. So, Mitch, your mm. point about this feeling more 70s, I think they were aware of that, and they wanted to give it a more 70s look. An Argyle losing his grip and thinking the bear's talking to him, and it's just, it's awful to watch his <laughs> sort of deterioration and descent. Oh, I love McLean telling, calling them macho assholes. It's like, nice. Our action hero is accusing others of, uh, uh, rightfully right, so. Right. He's Which rightfully again, so. But yeah. yeah. Every man. So we're on a second candy bar already, I think. He's, he had a Mars. He was grabbing for a Mars bar, I think, and he's got a crunch. You know? <laughs> was this terrorist nickname like Sweet Tooth or something like that? Like his code name? <laughs> like Come in, Sweet Tooth. Did he play Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted? 
Yes. Yeah. Where, where of course, he had a sugar rush. Remember, he loved the sugar rush. Of That's the, right. Yeah. little intertextuality. Intertextuality. <laughs> can someone explain this to me? Why I don't do they know. have to go through all this and yeah, not just do this? Just, yeah. I, Break the glass. Reason. Break the glass. <laughs> I don't know. I guess Robinson, he's got a real thing about glasses. We'll find out later. Maybe he's like, whatever you do, don't break the glass. We don't want glass all over everybody, okay? I like that they thought their little lockpicks would go through on that. Like the the lockpicks play in A. Eh, the torch eh. is playing B. The glass is like playing C. Yeah, don't they have a battering ram? Sure. I mean, they were about to drive... The, a yeah. tank through it. There is <laughs> old Mr. Lockjaw. Send in the car. <laughs> Send in the car. Uh... Holy wow. But we are watching all of this incompetence, and on one hand, yeah, it's because we're rooting for Bruce Willis, but the terrorists are having a ball with it. Oh, and yeah. I just I just think it's Tony is so funny when calling it an RV and all this business that you you get to identify with the terrorists and you get a really great transgressive rush out of it not terrorists actually thieves mm -hmm. yeah and another nice moment where you realize they really did plan for everything but him mm -hmm. I mean you know think about all the money spent prepping for all this and how many thousands and thousands of I, I don't know Deutschmarks or whatever they spent on plastique and and missiles and everything should have worked yeah you probably found out that the amount of money they spent on this is about how much they would get in the right. bonds well, that guys, they get out of the vault profit at least thirty thousand dollars <laughs> if we cash in all those bonds and what was that dude doing advancing on him was he really going to try and take away his gun <laughs> I think he just wanted to see, too. That's what I think. <laughs> I, think hey, I was just trying to get a look, too. It's great. They've got the you know the rivet gun and everything to mount the thing. And which yeah, it's crazy. It's just so together. Pomp. I love the metallic thunk in the dust. So um, the police, they have this RV here. Uh, what were they going to do with it again? Apparently crash in, in something or other. They're just going to drive up those stairs. That seems to be their whole plan. Because I don't know what else. Like, you could just break the door <laughs> with the butt of a gun. <laughs> it just, uh, all this is just so nonsensical. It's great, though. That's great. That's a great practical effect. That's such a great move to get us back on McLean's side mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with this extra sadistic hit it again. Reestablishes Hans as the villain. Yeah, also makes us feel a little guilty for enjoying it, you know, the quarterback yeah. line so much. Totally. <laughs> Why'd the window break a second time? <laughs> with the with the second I mean, missile. I don't know. So I give this movie one star. <laughs> right there. My, 
yeah, it got, I guess it was what, visual effects, sound effects, and film, and editing, I think, were all Oscar noms for this movie. Yeah. Deservedly so, just so much skill behind the camera. Oh. This plastic down the elevator shaft is also in the book. Hmm. Really? Is the yeah. book, I mean, is it is it a good read at all? Yeah, it's a great read. Okay. Je- I've always sure. meant to read it. What's the title of the book? I've forgotten around. Nothing Lasts Forever, isn't it? Yeah. It ends way on a way harsher note, right? Yes. Yeah. I know which how it we, ends, which, we'll which I think kind of keeps me from what, what, reading it, maybe. But Yeah. Well, when we get there, I'll mention it. God, this is what made me invest in that screen door company. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Just the flames roaring up the shaft at him. That's great. And he's so sulky right here. Mm-hmm. It's great. He, you know, he's always so poised, and there he is sulking a little bit. Oh, we're about to get the big Atherton moment. Oh, beautiful. I get the feeling that Michael Bay took all the wrong lessons from John McTiernan in his <laughs> sort of anti-authoritarian, you know, cops are idiots and the media are idiots, and he just pushed that cliche about a thousand percent. That's why we can only rely on robots in his movies. Yeah. They're the only Did people you- that we can really lean on. Do you think that photo is just a candid shot of Alan Rickman when, in like 1976 or something? It's such a weird moment. Standing in line to audition for something on the West End. Yeah, he looks like he's at craft services or something. He's just like grabbing a cup of coffee. <laughs> that got that got his attention. Screen doors. That got old. <laughs> old Dwayne heard that. Cover with glass, the way he says it is great. <laughs> Look at the shit about glass. <laughs> and the middle initial is important too. God. Oh yeah. That T is for tough. When Dwayne was a rookie, he accidentally backed his squad car into a glass front of a building. <laughs> thing that's tormenting Killing his, his captain. entire career. <laughs> Boy, did this bring the theater down too. Butt fucked on national TV is quite a line. I you don't hear the I mean, butt fuck is a word old. you don't hear a lot in movies anyway, and it's sort of a funny sounding <laughs> word and a goofy word. And to hear it thrown out in the middle of this, eighth grade me just went batshit. <laughs> me too. I was like, well, first of all, I was like, what? <laughs> I was raised rather innocently. I was like, what does he mean by that exactly? <laughs> oh, innocence lost. The joys of R-rated movies. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and once once Die Hard series went to PG-13, it got a hell of a lot worse. Oh, boy. He's powering up. (laughs) He took his vitamin supplement. He did a a bump. He's ready to go. You know, it's really. I read somewhere. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh sorry. no, it's all right. I I was just thinking it's it's really funny because like in in a world of, 
uh, you know, where John McClane starts off as a slime ball, he is surrounded by slime balls. Like, you know, mm-hmm. by comparison, it's just, it's, it's interesting. I teach a class on antiheroes and we talk about how the setting usually informs the antihero qualities. Like the antihero has to become an antihero by comparison to others around them. And that's mm-hmm. so true here because it's just like, just when I forgot about this asshole, he shows <laughs> up, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, this is one of the slimiest scenes in the history. I mean, this guy he puts, lays it on so thick. And I guess a lot of this stuff was uh, was ad-libbed, actually. It was. McTiernan didn't really like uh, this choice, but apparently Larry Gordon loved it. And so... Well, he was right, because it's, it's great. And Joel liked it. Larry and Joel both liked it. It's just the sleaziest 80s guy you can imagine. Hart Bachner's got the... Kenny Loggins beard going on here and those white yeah. teeth. He's great. Yeah, Bubby was entirely ad-libbed. <laughs> <laughs> I must have missed 60 minutes. Also a great line. And I love it. All he said is gibberish, right? Like Hans didn't mm-hmm. even get what he was saying. <laughs> no. It's all bullshit and posturing. Finally, he gets to the meat of it. And... Boom, there's the smile that melted Helen Slater's heart in Supergirl. Right there. <laughs> there it is. Time to bond over Twinkies. I love that he owes all the ingredients. Just like he's a Twinkie nerd. Yeah. Not just the guy that likes them. He's like a nerd about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a Dan Aykroyd moment there, you know, where he's re- right, yes. reading off a list of ingredients. It is, for sure. Again, note the camera movement on all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really important in terms of casting for this as well, that Bruce Willis have incredible chemistry with Powell and Hans because all of these scenes where he's you know interacting with them it feels like he's in the room with them Um, Mm -hmm. it's so intimate it's you know even just like the way he tilts his head you know and he when he's having these asides um, it's all just I don't know it's just brilliant McTiernan and 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 just great casting because again you know that they all all three of them have tremendous chemistry together even though they're very rarely shot together mm-hmm. yeah and I you know it, it makes me realize I, I'm not aware of when they shot these scenes how they did it if the other actors were on set or how that worked that would be an interesting thing to know now let me ask you I, it's been so long since I've seen this Mitch when you first saw this movie did you was were they trying to make us think he was about to hand the radio to Holly that that Ellis was about to tell him about Holly when we yeah. cut away from him before. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that as horrible as Ellis is, he was smart, just smart enough not to tell him about Holly. Or is he going it's, for credit for himself? No, because it, telling him about Holly would be even better for him, wouldn't it? Like it's more information, more that, that can be used against McLean. He's actually playing a role here um, that he didn't really have to play in order to get the credit from Hans and get... His, white what he night, thinks buddy. would be safety. I've always been kind of confused about the actual intention of this scene. There seems to be 
an incongruity between the lines as written and how McTiernan interpreted them as a director. It's, um, I don't know. I, I've always found this scene a little, it just doesn't work properly. Well, I, I think, think. Oh. I always mm-hmm. thought he was kind of stupid. That <laughs> there you is that, mistri- yeah. Well, yeah. You were being misdirected into thinking he was going to give up Holly, but that he was so full of himself that he didn't see that that line. Yeah. I guess particularly what I mean is the line where he says, hey, Hans, this is radio, not television. Put down the gun. And I feel like that was written to mean that the gun was pointed at him, uh, telegraphing his inevitable demise. But I don't know. Uh, Anyway, don't have time to talk about it here. (laughs) He's orchestrating this show for... McLean, but yeah, you're right. It's it's a lot of razzle dazzle. At least he gets one sip of coke. Yeah. You know, he gets to <laughs> slake his thirst. What a way to go! I mean, to be honest, that that wouldn't be so bad. As long as you, that was the, that the last stupid station. laugh of his. <laughs> as long as you get that one. I mean, perhaps for eternity he'll have that flavor, you know, to live on. I don't know. But of course, him dying is kind of unlike when he shot Mr. Takagi. We're kind of happy that Hans shot him because and not he, remotely surprised. And, but he could have really ruined everything, and so yeah. we're kind of ambivalent again about what these guys do. Or maybe I just am. <laughs> no, no. Is there any point though that you don't know, think that Hellas is going to die? I mean, I know you, you know it's not. He's not going to last the the movie. I don't know. I I don't know. Really? He might not last mm. the movie, but I didn't know necessarily he was going to die right there. He might have been a bigger problem yeah. for the rest of the film. Guess that could be. There's so many balls in the air that you just don't know who's going to make it to the end of the picture. Yeah, there's almost like a chaotic quality to this. You know, when uh, when all of the plan stops being the plan um it's it's interesting to me that um hans continues to rob you know he's he's like well you know i'm I'm still gonna get my money and that's what the you know the misdirect about the you know they're not terrorists they're trying to get get money you know it's like it it's it's I don't know. It's odd to me that he he's continuing here. He's just he's he, it's he's he's thriving on the murder. Um, you see him kind of like joyously, uh, you know, erupt out of the chair and take the walkie-talkie out so he can get the screams of everyone. Um, and yet he's still continuing with his, with you know, to to take the money. It's I don't know. It, it's it, it's odd to me. Just sort of that thinking. Well, this whole business where he's giving all the political demands uh-huh. is so great because he's making this shit up as he goes along, and or he's got it, he's got it there. This moment is just so great. Well, I think I think Han still thinks he has the upper hand. He's still waiting for the, the FBI. Done wrong. Yeah, he's still got the FBI. He's still got the rooftop, yeah. and he still probably thinks McLean is just getting lucky. I don't think. He thinks some New York cop has got the skills of his trained mercenaries or the brains that he has, you know. So I think he still thinks he's got it. 
under control to a certain extent. And I think that he also has a, a little bit of like um, a, a, a want to be a terrorist as well. You know, he plays it really well um, with mm-hmm. his three-piece suit and his, you know, he is his sort of swagger. I think that that it, ultimately maybe there's a little bit of wanting to belong in that category and not just be a common thief. I don't, I don't know. Right. Yeah, he does. He takes to. Does not take the line "common thief" kindly, no. right? Later, no, <laughs> he definitely does not want to be called that. So, do you guys think this is also, on some level, uh, a kind of a commentary on the disaster movies of the of the seventies? Beyond it being inspired by the Towering Inferno, uh, you know, you've got all of these characters with all of their own little mini stories, all surrounding this one big catastrophic event. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an ensemble thing going on within the the greater plot, and so it reminds you of the Towering Inferno or Poseidon Adventure that way. But yeah, I could agree with that. Yeah, there the is lack a- of Brenda Vaccaro or <laughs> Joseph Cotton or is it Robert Foxworth? Is the clearly- only thing it's missing is there's no old movie star, right? In it. Well, right. You would think that if yeah. they were going all out with that, among the hostages, there would be some of those, like uh, an older couple. Thank and, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank God, there's no Shelley Winters and <laughs> Jack. <what it> mean? <laughs> well, that shot later when the you know the fire system is going off and everything's doused in water and the big tr- christmas tree falls over is definitely sort of a poseidon adventure kind mm-hmm. of shot <laughs> the helsinki syndrome oh i i got to tell you it messed up my perception of what that was for years at yeah. first i didn't know what uh, uh, stockholm syndrome was before i saw this movie so it <laughs> took me forever to get that right in my mind i'm like no it's helsinki wait no it's stuck uh is that one more move to simply distance this from a real terrorist story? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they still thought it was too fresh. I mean, how long it had been? I, I don't know. It's been, I guess, like 12 or 13 years, right? I can't remember. I can't believe when this... the whole want a breath mint crack. I mean, that's like, he's the deputy chief. You could be like on parking duty if he says so. Yeah. But, mm, yeah. Al Powell has big no and little bucks to give, I don't think. Big and Little Johnson just cracks me up. And the line, not anymore, is perfect. Well, Davi may have played a Bond villain after this, right? Wasn't that after? Mm-hmm. That was one year later, right? License to Kill, but he, mm-hmm. this is the pinnacle of his career, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, well, some people would Davi. say Maniac Cop 3, but um, <laughs> you know, this, is, this is certainly up there. Taking from the DVD commentary, this scene coming up apparently was a late addition to the script where they decided that they really needed to have a moment where McLean and Hans Gruber meet face to face. And I think it was a smart choice. This is some of my favorite um, acting. It, look, look at how fluffy his hair looks. I mean, he he looks like he 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 loses his charm almost immediately here when he's acting like a hostage. It's just wonderful. Yeah, it really is. The audience mm-hmm. just went nuts during this moment. So, um, the, one of the stories is that um, that Rickman was just kind of going around making fun of American accents <laughs> and doing it and doing it so well that that's when they were, they had been racking their brain about how to get these two together. And this scene came from his 
uh, he's got a pretty pretty tricky accent he's got there. And I think that's where this came from. There's a lot of questions about that. I mean, everybody's got different stories. And then there's the, I think recently Stephen D'Souza revealed how um, John McClain figures it out. I think there's a clue in here that didn't really, I think that they had in the edit, in an early edit, that they cut it down and it's not there anymore, having to do with his watch. I'm trying to remember exactly how that, I'm just now remembering that. That was a couple of years ago that he came out saying that there was something about the watch that he's wearing that tells McLean that he's not American. Damn, I wish I would have looked that up before I forgot all about that until just now. Classic A7. Oh, clearly. Clearly it's an A7. <laughs> when we commandeer your men, we'll try and let you know. It's so That's, great. They're, they're just so over-the-top asshole. <laughs> they're just really... <laughs> <laughs> no way, I'm not going to take credit for that. Here's our Dutch angles. Yep. Yeah, and the close-up with the... We're coming up on it with the uh, roster off to one side. It's such a weird close-up, and then you realize, oh, it's there because it's setting up the, the listing of all the mm-hmm. employees. There, that shot is so weird. Look how yeah. far he is over see, on the fr- left of the frame. You can see Ellis's name there. Actually, I never noticed that you can actually see some of the actual people you know in that. Now, the barefoot business was in the book as well. Hmm. Just imagine a barefoot Frank Sinatra making this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Especially a 70-year-old barefoot Frank Sinatra. Oh, maybe the, the roster. He, maybe he looks over at the roster. Yeah, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I Bill somehow Clay. forgot that moment. Well, I like that the, there's the one one quick moment where Hans realized he was going to get his name asked. Like, he's like, wait, I didn't have a name planned. <laughs> it's really funny in his eyes. You could tell he didn't think about that for some reason. But he thinks quickly, fixes it. I love the way he grips the gun. Like, gosh. <laughs> it's yeah. perfect. Yeah, he, he looks pretty menacing it. right there. I think Clay mm-hmm. should be a little suspicious. <laughs> uh, putting out the cigarette. That's such a... Look at that. That shot is so wild. I don't know what's going awesome. on there. Where they're rock, racking focus and... And pulling and out of a Dutch... Well, kind of. Yeah, it's it's... It's still Dutch, but it's not as Dutch as it was before, is it? It's they kind of tilted the camera over again. <laughs> this can't be great on VHS. No, it's, ter- oh, it's terrible. <laughs> the grid pattern of the walls also just really helps with the composition yeah. of the scene it feels like a previs <laughs> you know the, some, some sort of wireframe computer background right i mean if i were hans i'd be a little worried right now 
that McLean's willing to just walk up to you so calmly. It might feel the weight of that gun a little bit more closely. <laughs> click, click. It's a little bit like when he clocks the guy with his elbow. He's just a little cocky. Mm-hmm. He's got these mm-hmm. moments. Oh, down goes Fritz. So watch his feet throughout this. I always say, watch his feet. They're, sometimes they look really, really big. <laughs> because he's wearing a giant, those giant prosthetic coverings <laughs> on his feet. Once the glass starts flying, his feet grow like four sizes. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> oh, that's again very Verhoeven. Yeah, that's just yeah, getting real bloody. It's kind of crazy. But the PG version of this wouldn't have the impact. You know? No, no. <laughs> we used to say this to each other in basketball practice in high school a lot. <laughs> I don't speak German, board. but apparently there's a lot of bad German all through this movie because a lot of these guys oh, yeah. didn't speak any German, and so they're kind of winging it. <laughs> Here comes, there's a crazy close-up of Alan Rickman yeah. with the gun where you just see, like, his lip. Yeah, it's it's great. <laughs> it's, such, <laughs> it's a bizarre, but I've always thought it was a great little moment. Where it's kind of gotten into nightmare territory yeah. or something. Like, yeah, yeah, right there, yeah, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. That was a weird whip pan, too. The piece of glass falls, and then it whips, and then it whips again. Yeah. Puts you in the moment, doesn't it? Hockey puck. <laughs> yeah, if we wouldn't have had that hockey puck earlier, we'd have no idea what that was. It's got to be, right? That's got to be why they mm-hmm. did it before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carl's turnaround here in a minute is really great with the big music cue. Yeah, it's interesting how through a lot of this stuff, the music kind of becomes this (laughs) Magnificent Seven music. Mm -hmm. It has this weird Western thing going on. Well, I love that moment because it shows us Hans is still on the plan and Carl doesn't give a shit about the plan. That's what it kind of tells you in that moment. He's he's still lost in his emotions. Like, I just want to kill this guy. I don't care about any detonators. So he's a German. He's an Asian German. Okay. Uh oh. Uh oh. He hates these bottles. Get away from the bottles. <laughs> Look at all that that space on the left of the frame. You know, mm-hmm. and still you're watching her. Mm-hmm. It's pretty impressive that she can command that frame. Mm. Got a little blood tube down the back of the pant leg. Yeah.
<laughs> That's a WC Fields re- reference, right? That's lost mm-hmm. on everybody yes. now. Yes. What what line? I, all things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. No. There's a that, version of that on his tombstone, but that's not exactly what it is. And hard to believe that D'Souza really wanted to use a line from Boston Blackie of the Dead End Kids. So <laughs> that was that was as recognizable as he was willing to go. Oh, here comes Powell's moment. I guess this moment plays kind of different in light of just things. Well, I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not just this moment. It's his arc yeah. that plays differently now. Yeah. Because his redemption is he's able to shoot a guy now. Yeah. A really <laughs> Thank bad you. guy. Thank you, John. I can kill again. <laughs> yeah. It's like Miguel Ferrer and Hot Shots Part 2 or right. whatever. <laughs> I can kill again. It, <laughs> I can shoot. At least this time it's the right person, I guess. And yet, yeah, as long as it's homicidal Euro trash, I'm fully prepared. <laughs> the backstory isn't in the book, but but the final moment where Carl, presumed dead, shows up and starts shooting, and Powell saves McLean is in the book. Huh. Oh, wow, I had no really. idea it stuck to the book, or at least had that much of the book in it. It's yeah, it's just got a lot of these sort of touchstone moments from the book, <clears throat> but then they've expanded them. Mitch, does it take place during Christmas? No, it doesn't. I don't think so. It's Arbor Day. I, I think that was. <laughs> I think. I, th- I think that was Lloyd Levin's thing. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. Uh, maybe it is Christmas. I can't remember. Now Theo <laughs> gets it. Yeah. So Hans just wanted to have this little secret. Is there a reason why he didn't tell him about this before? I, I, I love the reveal, but at the same time, it's like, why wouldn't you tell your computer guy? Give me Dukeman. We have our Dukeman moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again, the, the higher up you are, the less competent you are. Yeah. Right? So mm-hmm. the guy who's obviously his supervisor doesn't know shit about any of this. The guy that's in, literally in a manhole <laughs> is the guy that knows how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's about protocol and bureaucracy. You know, again, the same yep. thing that Michael right. Bay has taken and run with. You know, that the common man can can get things done immediately if you just get rid of all the red tape. It's populism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's why populism is so appealing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's on surface. It, it's built on these notions that institutions are no good and the common man is where it's all. I love that light shift. It makes it look like a horror film. Mm-hmm. So great. With all the blood everywhere, too. It's just... I, I like that. Yeah. It's a perfect Christmas movie because it's got all that horror in it, right? It's not a Christmas movie if it doesn't have darkness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, th- 
think I think of like Christmas movies like uh, instead of its own genre, I think of it like kind of like French New Wave in the fact that French New Wave is is a lot of genres. You have sci-fi and noir and romantic comedy and thriller and all all of the genres sort of within um you know or or independent cinema right independent cinema is in its own genre it's it's uh you know just sort of it's a a so it's like a style like an umbrella over the whole thing kind of well i'm always really interested in why again you know why did the filmmakers decide to make this movie at christmas you know it's it's not always obvious um you know but but there you know there's a reason why terry gilliam made brazil during christmas you know there's even even in these movies where christmas isn't central there's still uh you know something going on you know in a decision that was made um and yeah and it and it means something somehow and and i think that's why people get upset about like the the you know the Mm -hmm. argument is it a christmas movie or not well, to me, it's uh, Christmas time's a perfect why now for everybody in this movie. Yes. Oh, so yes. why have the heist now? Well, everybody's out of the building. Why is John in L.A.? Because his family's yeah. there. And then when you get into the themes of a man trying to reunite his family or trying to get home to his family and reconcile with them, that's very Christmassy. And then when people are fucking saying Merry Christmas ten times to a movie, it's a Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just get so annoyed with it. Like, why are, why argue against it? They go to great lengths to make this a Christmas movie. I don't and know why people argue against it. But there's such um, sadness and melancholy and, and plans that don't come to fruition as part of Christmas movies, whether it's whether it's go- A Christmas Carol by Dickens or... Or it's a wonderful life. It seems like there's always this real melancholy. I mean, Christmas songs. So many Christmas songs are so they're in minor keys and they're mm-hmm. sad, and that's just kind of part of it, you know. Yeah. If it's a happy Christmas movie, I'm suspicious of it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to think of those. To be honest with you, there's usually something dark. About even the, I'm trying to think, the, there's a night to remember with with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. She goes to jail at the end of that movie. Spoiler alert. <laughs> you know, it's it's like they got to wait for each other for about three years. I think at the end of that movie. Um, yet it's a cheery. It's kind of a cheery comedy at the same time. But you're right. They always kind of there's, there's always something a little dark. I mean, things are not gonna go perfect for George Bailey. Just because he figured out that he was worth something, I still think that <laughs> there's darkness around the corner with that guy, you know? So, Aaron, you were saying earlier how this is a, a redemption story. Is this is this a, a key concluding moment in McLean's arc? Oh, I think so, yeah. It's it's so tenderly um, done. Uh, you know, th- this is a macho movie, right? You know, and, and, and it's, it's an action film, but he is so vulnerable here he's got tears in his eyes he is apologizing for not giving his wife all of the credit she deserves and it's it's like you know it's like he thinks at this point i'm yeah i'm probably gonna die in this building i want you to tell my wife that i'm sorry he's apologizing i mean it's like it it Again, it's it would be, I think, a much more forgettable film if we didn't have that layered, beautiful, um, you know, uh, masculine um, 
qualities of tenderness and we see it in McLean we see it in Powell here um, both guys with their with their eyes glistening cops as human beings um, and uh, that the scene at the end when they embrace and they're almost weeping into each other's <laughs> arms is so fucking great it's beautiful <laughs> I in that you know that for me again is why I live for this film I love those moments and you know and I love the explosions too I mean don't get me wrong mm -hmm. but um, you know again I just don't think that it would have its its weight without that and without this dickhead <laughs> I know from that moment of compassion to this cruelty that with him yeah. threatening her, you know, with the INS is just so wicked. Oh, yeah. And there's is nothing funny about it. I mean, it's just this guy is really loathsome. He is worse than Dwayne Robinson. Well, to go back to your point, Aaron, about the relationship between McLean and, and, and Powell, it's interesting because there has to be somebody else right because we got a guy it's a family movie in a way it's a guy trying to save his family trying to get back to his family ultimately but he can't plot wise he cannot interact with his family right so we have to have powell is so important to the humanity of mclean you have to have this character come in and we get right away we talked about it when he's in the store he's a soft character powell is he gives to charity he takes he takes gentle ribbing well you yeah. know and you can and and he doesn't know how to drive the car. All these little things that don't make it clear. This is not a tough guy cop. Now, McLean's a tough guy cop when he's against tough guys, but he can be, he's a human when he's dealing with humans. So it's a perfect uh, like pivot point for McLean. It gives them like sort of a buddy quality. It's a buddy. It's a buddy mm -hmm. movie, and in, in that way, they can be funny together, and they can be vulnerable and and open with each other as well. Which is what's wrong with the other Die Hard movies and most of Bruce Willis's other movies. Because hmm. here's a film where the movie is bigger than him and he's a real person, you know, in, in the story. And it's so seldom when you see him do that uh, convincingly. Pulp Fiction is bigger than him. We might have to talk about that when we do the Die Hard with a Vengeance commentary. Is that the third one? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the that that movie's pretty better. successfully does it again. It's McTiernan again. It's better. great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's better. And I think him and Sam Jackson are great, and I think the movie's bigger than he is in that as well, which yeah, is crazy yeah. considering what point in his career he's in. But Die Hard 4, not so much. Die <laughs> no, Hard that's garbage. Right? Uh, Die Hard 2 was just a bad script. They could have maybe pulled and it off. And a bad director. Sorry, Rennie. In a, yeah. <laughs> I, I love like that ejector seat I like moment. Franco Nero I, 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 like... I like Franco Nero too come on I mean, there's things to like about Dyer too but it's not a very successful story in my opinion y'all never took the drug on the war on drugs seriously I guess that's fine that's <laughs> fine but Robert Patrick Don Harvey I mean that movie I love it oh. I'll say it right now oh, John Amos it. man you forgot most memorable part of that movie to me when Hans and, uh, slides into that room, it's so so awesome. I just had to point mm -hmm. that out. It's just like, yeah, yeah it is. What a, a great physical moment! He just slides in and starts shooting the ceiling. It's like so <laughs> unhinged. He's just he's giddy, right? <laughs> this transition into Yosemite Hans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and see, Goodenough starts to lose the fight the minute he stops being all poised, right? Mm -hmm. He he jumps on him in this sort of WWE thing. And then he just starts getting pipes to the head. 
And and you know it's I've always wondered about that line where McLean tells him that pretty brutal line about breaking his brother's neck, but you almost wonder if McLean isn't trying to draw him into his style of fighting by getting him getting him more angry, get making him more. Brutal. Yeah, and he's like, I'm gonna cook you and eat you, <laughs> like, <it's> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like so nuts. <laughs> Look at this real helicopter, though. Okay. I just want to ha- we have to point that out pre CGI, you know, wow. and you can just tell that they're really doing this stuff yeah and post twilight zone yeah it, i cannot believe they shot that stuff to be honest with you at this point that we're one year probably less than probably right in the middle of the trial yeah it was seven right it was a factor it was a factor in how they were going to do these stunts and yeah things i just can't i almost can't re- believe they even tried that they stuff, had two but. hours to do that fly through wow Another reason why I don't understand why he doesn't leave it in an ambulance at the end of the film. You got shot in the back. <laughs> he's got Argyle. Argyle's been waiting that whole time. He doesn't want him to seem like he's wasting his he time. He does really well given that he's got been shot. Yeah. He's fighting oh, pretty yeah. well. Yeah, he's had it right here, right there. I'm gonna fucking cook you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so crazy. But he's street, man. That's that's the thing. McLean's from the street. He's going to get that hardcore on Man, you. the split on these bear bonds is getting more and more favorable. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, these guys are just watching their future fortunes skyrocket. <laughs> okay, so uh, why do we see her bra, Aaron? You know, uh, I don't know. It It is, it is I, I don't know, maybe because he's manhandling her for the first time. Um, before he was having like a real um, dignified conversation about the hostages, uh, something that he's not at all interested in. He, he doesn't care whether they have bathroom breaks or not. And now that he now he's punishing her. And I think that you, we see him like, you know, pulling her around and yanking her. And, you know, and it, it, it does it kind of mirrors John McClane now because he's no longer wearing his shirt. Um, and so, like, the, I, I see a lot of the two of them playing um, is, is in sim- similar terms. Like, John McClane's not afraid of Hans, neither is she. Um, you know, he's not wearing his shirt now, and she, now we see her bra, maybe. There's there's something physically happening that's being mirrored. I don't know. But, yeah, she, she, she still has the upper hand. You're common thieves, and he's <laughs> he's not having it. I guess not upper hand, but... She's attempting to have strength there. So it's nothing as crass as the male gaze. Just uh, we need to show a little something extra here at this part of the movie. It could be, you know, I, you know, taking taking a woman out of uh, the mommy role um, and into more of the 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 sexy, you know, lady. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a little bit of it. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could have permed my hair like hers for today's conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's real special. <laughs> Man, they get a lot of mileage out of the widescreen up here. The scope. Yeah. It's shot here in just a second. That's just beautiful. Pretty good blue screen work on the helicopter interiors on those guys, too. Inst- yeah, it does look pretty good. Yeah. 
<laughs> Incidentally, my daughter caught a little bit of this moment when I was when I was watching before before our discussion, and she she mistook him for a bad guy as well. She's like, oh, oh yeah. bad guy. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> he looks like it, doesn't he? It's great the helicopter roaring over maybe twenty feet as he as he jumps off the roof there. That's great. It's like something. Somebody's about King to take Kong. one right in the head here in a second. Wait, is it here or? Oh, maybe it's the next time they go down the stairs. Notice there's like a big chunk of something that hits an extra right in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I'll point it out to you. This fire hose bit is also in the book. Huh. So he just doesn't think what? that he can get to a staircase, I guess. I mean, it's an uh, amazing stunt. It's an amazing moment. But he just, he's, he okay, so he's just given up trying to get across the helipad to the stairs. Oh, man, more apostrophes from Eddie. Something <laughs> wrong. Coming <laughs> back <wrong>. down. <laughs> We'll never get to Chickasaw County at this rate. Come on, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty spectacular, though. Man. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that's some practical awesomeness. Again, I just, this film is so aware of the action pleasures. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and it goes yeah. for every single one of them. I mean, even just the blood on the window here. And... Yeah. Well, and just simple, like, physics and cause and effect. I yeah. mean, it's just the fun of, 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 of cause and effect. It's just great action filmmaking. <laughs> becomes one of the great focus polls of all time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder how how many times they had to get that that one right. The timing of it was crazy. Now we're really dealing with a movie time situation right now, right? That helicopter's still hanging out up there. <laughs> it's always been one thing where I've been like, man, how long was that helicopter just hanging out up there, <laughs> completely engulfed in flames? Yeah, right here. There's. Do you see the guy take one in the head? It was. I always thought this. See, John's all the way down. Now he's all the way here, and the helicopter still has not come down yet. Oh wow! Yeah, it's like a weird choice in the editing. You think they would have cut to that before, but they want to get this moment with the explosion right. with him too. Is this like an homage to Predator here with the the, the jungle? Oh, and the it kind of does look like it. Yeah, I never thought about that. Well, I always and thought it was it was laugh. actually a Vietnam reference. You know, just like the special agent yeah. Johnson says, just like in Saigon. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. He looks like Rambo. I love this moment because it's like the explosion took the elevator. <laughs> it's just like your floor, sir. We, we've reached this area of a nightmare at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah for just sure. become a nightmare. Christmas trees are falling yeah. down. Yeah, what a night. It is. That's our Poseidon <laughs> Adventure shot. So I was talking yep. about. Right. And here's the unlikely... Uh, ambulance that was apparently folded up into a suitcase or something in the back of the truck. It's just like, no, no, <laughs> yeah. that was not there. <laughs> it's okay, though. I love it. But I did think Anderson tapes when I saw that the first time. Yeah. It's like, that's again back to that sort of 70s. Well, it's even more of a 70s era ambulance, isn't it? Weren't they up to the to the more like the truck bed with the box on the back of it by this point in the 80s? I don't know. Maybe not. 
It looks like it's from the show Emergency or something. <laughs> That's what this movie needs is some Randolph Mantooth. Please. Oh, so Kevin Ty would not be unwelcome. <laughs> He'd be somebody's asshole dad in this movie, no doubt. By this age, that's pretty much. I love this. Played, it's I like think. it's like Jaws cruising around right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so oh, great. Kyle. <laughs> and this is ballsy of our guy. I mean, yeah, how does he wrecking the car, but. <laughs> Running up to punch a man in the yeah. face. That's pretty pretty ballsy. Pretty gratuitous nerd on nerd violence right there, but <laughs> Oof. Easy V. Down goes the French one. Hans. Wow. And that's a great move with the draw <laughs> yeah, and tug her from cover. That's, very that's real. Basil Rathbone. Mm, it's yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and her shock at his condition is great too. Yeah. Yeah, nobody's nobody's. <laughs> he hasn't gotten that proper physical sympathy. Like people have not seen how, what he's been going through yet. And her That's just thinking, slightly satisfying to him. Jesus, yeah, please understand, you'll be staying at Cappy's, not my guest room. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So in the book, he does the tape the gun bit. Really? Also God, all these clever book, ideas but, that I figure are screenwriters. Huh. But in the book, Hans takes. Takes his daughter out the window with him yeah. to her death. Yes, really? Yeah. Ew. Oh shit. Uh. That's horrible. I can really see why they decided not to go that route with the big summer <laughs> blockbuster, with him taking Holly plummeting with her. I know the emasculated hero. Put the gun down. And yet cocky. <laughs> Americans all alike, always overdressing for the wrong occasion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. I, I I see like a lot of sort of final girl in John McClane here. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's 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 basically yeah, he's slasher film. You know that slow painful death and the plucky you know hearty girl gets him in the end kind of it's again it's so satisfying um but yeah it's it's, it's... and the gradually gathering guffaw which is always the undoing <laughs> of every villain god i love that it's christmas tape <sighs> oh yeah and he blows on it like it's it's great like it's his revolver his six shooter well oh shatterproof my ass Do you th- did was holly thinking he's lost his mind she has this they keep cutting to her face and she's got this look as either she's very worried or she's realizing that he's got something going on yeah, I can't tell I which she, one it is I think she knows him well enough to know that she's he's got something going on yeah so we got some we got a hell of a focus pull coming up here so <sighs> yeah when he falls this is such you gotta they had to follow focus on this shot to make of course the Rolex is the symbol of yes letting go and what was the gimmick they were going to drop him on he said we're going to drop you on three and they dropped him on two something like yeah, that to yeah, get that yeah. look <laughs> yeah. he was not expecting but, to like, be dropped they got to follow focus and that's 
fast. That's, yeah. That's pretty amazing. I think they said, so he was. What a fall for the stuntman. <laughs> he was talking <laughs> about crazy. how, like, you know, he told them, he was like, I want to, I want to do this stunt. And there was just dead silence. Like, no, dude, there, no. Cause if you turn around or so, you know, and it's, a, it's like a 40 foot fall. Um, you know, and, and they, they were like, no, we can't, we can't have you do that. And he was like, no, no, I, I totally want to do it. And, and like, it was like sheer terror because he was really, really scared. <laughs> I saw a picture of him doing the stunt and it is so funny, like him in his suit <laughs> and all of these like crewmen, like, and he's just dangling off the side of this thing about to do the stunt. It's, it's great. And are we thinking that no single copper fireman picked up one of those one hundred thousand oh. dollar bearer bonds for Christmas? No, for sure they did. Yeah. It's raining in bonds. Books, it's cash, bonds. and in his disillusionment of his losing his daughter, he pours all the cash out of the top of the building. Oh, mm. that becomes it rains money. These are clearly blank sheets of paper that are falling. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. that's that. too bad. It was really just the copy room that blew up. Right at the top <laughs> we, of the we, we lost. We got the bear bonds, but we're, we're, our office supply budget well, was completely. Remember destroyed. the fax machine was in the it was in the vault room. Remember, so that's probably where the printer was. I love this. And another good example of the Bruce Willis screaming laugh. That so he, there's this really sweet romantic <laughs> music here that's total John Barry with flutes mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. French horns. And it would make you think, man, this guy might be able to do a James Bond score. And he can't. And he doesn't. <laughs> no. Uh, the other music cue that comes up here in a minute when when Carl reappears oh, is actually yeah. a piece of James Horner's music that was lifted from, unused from Aliens. Uh, huh. they didn't, he didn't like what Cayman had delivered in that moment, and so they swiped some other some Horner yeah, stuff. Because when I saw it, it the I first did... time, I was like, that sounds like it he's does. off James Horner. Yeah. Well, Are you talking about is. the... Not not exactly when Carl comes in, but when Powell has shot him, and it's like yeah, the, the big long focus going, pull from dun, the barrel dun, 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 yeah. Dun. yeah, yeah, yeah. It does sound like aliens. Now that you say it, I didn't know that. I don't know if we ever talked about that before. I'll take good care of him at least through the second film, but then our marriage will crumble. Oh. Well, they made the mistake of going back to New York. He, so he was going to punch him. <laughs> the sound effects and just the Boom. close-up shot of the gun. Yeah. <laughs> I love his bulging eyes. and Yeah, yeah I think it's the music right here. This yeah. is, this yeah. is uh-huh. James Horner. I and I feel like him. Walter Hill... Walter Hill kind of used that shot and that sound effect in the, another 48 hours the next year. There's a lot of those kind of close-ups of a, of a like 357 with a big booming sound in, in that movie the next year. I'm impressed that you can remember anything from another 48 hours. I, <laughs> I'm fascinated with that movie. Are you really? He, I'm a big well, I don't like it. fan, so yeah, I love it too. But, All I remember but it's, is it it's like Walter Hill was like, oh, it's, it's completely Cherry, nuts. Cherry Gans. It just clearly seems to me that Walter Hill did not want to make it. So when he when he begrudgingly did, he just made the John Wooiest thing he could out of it. It's just complete insanity with the action. And Al Powell says, "Do you want my number or my card? We'll we'll see you later." Okay, so McLean was going to was going to punch Powell. She punches him. One of the family members was going to punch one of these assholes. That's established. 
then John McClane passes out from blood loss <laughs> in the back of the limousine. <laughs> so take take notice, marriage counselors. All it takes to patch a marriage back together <laughs> is this building, these terrorists. Dum, 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 well, dum. look at that. We made it to the end, you guys. This is wow. this is amazing. Not bad with remote Zoom stuff. It would be more fun if we were all in the same room together. Though. Yeah. Holly Gennaro McLean. I I didn't even think that I would love this movie anymore, but I love it so much more now. Now that we've talked about it, like you know, this <laughs> like uh, you know, like Todd, I I didn't, I guess I never really even thought about the fact that those are real helicopters. It's just I don't oh, know. Yeah. I love doing this with you guys. It's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was fun. I yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was like I was saying before, Aaron, that you t- when you watch a movie so many times throughout your life, you start to take things yeah. for granted. You're you don't worry about, oh, real helicopters, whatever. You just figured that was true maybe when you were 13 or however old you were when you saw it for the first time. And when you really think about it, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> like, that still blows my mind, knowing, knowing what we now know about that time period of how, how helicopters did you, I'm, and I'm curious. How did you guys feel the first time you saw this movie when it was over? Because I can tell you, for me, I was not expecting this movie to be great. I went in kind of with low expectations or whatever, no expectations. And when the credits rolled, I was sad that it was over. I just loved it so mm-hmm. much. I wanted it to keep going. Yeah, me too. I was so thrilled with it because I didn't yet have Bruce Willis in a movie. Yeah, okay, maybe. And I was, it was just, I was, uh, you know, it's one of those moments for me where you see a movie and it kind of gives you hope about movies. <laughs> you know, you, you remember what it's like mm-hmm. to just be completely swept away by a film. See, I, this was the time period where I thought pretty much anything that had an explosion in it was the best. You know, that's, <laughs> I was just at that age where, you know, and but this one always did stick out. I It was one that I went out of my way to buy on VHS and watched many, many times over all, you know, throughout the year. So it stuck out to me. I just don't remember thinking anything other than another great one from Hollywood. Good job, guys. Ah, <laughs> uh, youth. <laughs> I mean, the next year, I think it was the next year, I was super stoked for Tango and Cash, you know, if that tells you anything. Uh-uh. <laughs> 65 millimeter. They even point that out. Special yeah. Special done in 65 millimeter by Richard Edlund's Richard Boss Edlund. Films. Yeah. And they did build a model building of, of the mm-hmm. Nakatomi Plaza that they used for some, I don't know, I don't know which shots, but yeah. Because I know a lot of those explosions were practical. Some of them were practical. The one on the roof was a practical. Yeah, I'm sure they bit some big fire pot type things up on the roof, but those were huge up on the helipad. Those were amazing. I recognize some of these names in the credits as people who then moved on to higher positions in the 90s, I think, just, you know, in terms of camera work and other things. Mm. Not the DGA yeah, training. But but I'm kind of looking for, for that, Bruce too. Willis. I'm not seeing oh, That's interesting. I think he was particularly well muscled in the movie, but hey. Well, you got to be in some kind of shape to do those fight yeah, he scenes. Pretty good. And stuff. Michael Kamen conducting the orchestra. That's nice. Wonder if he conducted the orchestra for License to Kill. <laughs> I think he did. I think it's credited as, as conducted. Mm hmm. 
knives provided by wow <laughs> and there it is the flank franklin right foundation huh. i don't know where singing in the rain is i, I still either. haven't heard it yeah i i, I was listening it's to um it it's uh theo it. isn't theo singing yeah, it theo. Or humming it when he's, yeah, when he's when going he's, into first when he's locking out the, the elevators and and disabling all the tech in the building oh yes. okay How much of this would be shot in Vancouver today to make it nice and cheap? Yeah. Yeah, there were some unhappy neighbors. There's our favorite title designer of the 80s. Mm. R. Greenberg and Associates. Well, thanks everybody for, for uh, yeah. joining us. And we hope everybody enjoyed our commentary on this movie. Thanks to Todd and Jason, and Aaron, John, and uh, nope. we'll see you next time somewhere. Happy holidays, Happy everyone. Holidays. Happy Christmas to all. Merry Christmas.